November 12, 2001, 9.14 a.m. American Airlines Flight 587, a nonstop flight from New York's JFK Airport to Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, has just taken off with 251 passengers and nine crew members on board. This Airbus A300 is climbing when it hits the wake turbulence of a larger plane in front of it. The crew briefly wrestles with the controls to smooth the flight out when suddenly the plane's vertical stabilizer snaps off and falls into Jamaica Bay. The plane enters a flat spin and the forces are so great that the plane's engines are ripped off before the plane slams into houses in a Rockaway Park neighborhood below. Only two months after 9-11 did terrorists strike again? Was the plane not properly maintained? Did the pilots have any hope of saving this plane? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. It's me, Gus, and it's also Chris. Hi, Chris. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to this podcast. Uh, just as a reminder for everyone, uh, we like to look into aviation disasters. Neither of us are pilots. <laughs> I'm just, I just find uh, aviation incidents very interesting, and I like to find out. I'm really curious about the process. You know, flying is the safest form of travel, and when something goes wrong, there's normally several things that lead up to it. And that's what I find interesting. And the industry learns and adapts and things become even safer because of incidents. So I'm always curious when something does go wrong. And Chris doesn't have as much knowledge about no. uh, aviation incidents, but you're, you're here for the ride. You're interested in hearing about them. Yeah, I, I neither of us are pilots, but I'm like not even allowed in the cockpit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody is. Well, but, I mean, uh, just comparatively. Uh, I, I, I see. You're, you're, it mean you're, you were it mean you were on a plane by ourselves and it was going down, you would take control. I'll just well, put it that way. Well, you, well, you've been here for a few episodes. You, you, you know a few things now. Yeah, I'd be assistant. I'd be like the sous chef or whatever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so and I want to remind everyone to go ahead and follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at BlackBoxDownPod. We post uh, images and supplemental material that we may not be able to properly explain or show you in an audio podcast, but you can, uh, you can see some supplemental information there. And uh, you might get a reply from us on social media. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this flight, American Airlines Flight 587. God, every episode I want to say this is an interesting one. I, I'm just going to stop saying that. They're well, all they interesting. They should all be interesting. They're, they're, I think they're all very interesting. <laughs> I feel like this is, it's strange to say, but I feel like it's almost a forgotten incident. It happened so quickly after September 11th. It happened, you know, this incident occurred November 12th, 2001. Uh -huh. I feel like people forget that this plane crashed. This plane crashed in New York, you know, into a neighborhood. Whoa. Right after 9-11. I right. don't have any memory of it. Right. It's two months after 9-11. I think people were so wrapped up in what would happen if September 11th. We'll, we'll get into it. There was initial concern that this plane was brought down by terrorism. Uh, spoiler, it wasn't. And I think once people realized it wasn't terrorism, like the country just kind of moved on. You know, they were more focused on September 11th. And I feel like this incident gets overlooked as a result of that. But it's there's a lot to be learned from this incident. The aviation industry, of course, did not overlook it. The aviation industry learned and, you know, changed some things because of this incident. So, like I said, American Airlines Flight 587, it was a passenger flight from JFK International Airport in New York City to uh, Las Americas International Airport in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic on November 12, 2001. The plane was an Airbus A300, and it had been with American Airlines since 1988. So what is that, like 13 years? Yeah. The flight was crewed by Captain Edward Ed States, who was 42 and had 8,050 hours total flight time, and First Officer Sten Molin, who was 24 years old and had 4,403 hours of total flight time. And the First Officer, uh, Sten Molin, was the pilot flying at the time of the incident. 4,000? Uh, that's not that much, right? 4,400? That's, I mean, that's quite a bit. You think of like an average work week... You know, working, what, eight hours a day, an average work week's 40 hours. That's, what, 1,100 
1100 weeks of work that's uh it's quite a bit did i do that math right yeah so i mean it, it, it's 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 quite a bit you know that's that's nothing to sneeze at i'm curious how many hours are in a in a year now <laughs> how many hours are in a year i'm asking my phone 8,765 hours. So he had essentially flown for six months nonstop. Okay. All right. Think about it that way. Okay. So uh, the crew taxied the plane to runway 31 left, and it was behind a Japan Airlines Boeing 747. Uh, the Japan Airlines flight was cleared for takeoff at 9.11 a.m., and about 30 seconds later, the tower cautioned Flight 587 about potential wake turbulence from that 747. At 9.13, Flight 587 was cleared for takeoff and left the runway oh, about a minute later. Total, it was about a minute and 40 seconds after the 747. You know, it takes them a little bit of time to start rolling and take off. Mm -hmm. So the time it compressed a little bit. So it was about a minute and 40 seconds after the 747 had taken off. Flight 587 climbed to 500 feet and began a left turn climb to a heading of 220 degrees. At 9.15 a.m., the captain contacted departure, informing them that they were climbing through 1,300 feet to 5,000 feet, and which they were cleared up to 13,000 feet. So they're on their ascent. You know, they're climbing after takeoff. Yeah. So the takeoff was fine. Yeah. yeah, so far, everything's smooth. They're still not done. You know, they're still climbing through lower altitudes. They're not at cruising altitude yet. So at 9.15 and 36 seconds, Flight 587 entered the wake turbulence from that Japan Airlines 747. And in response to this, First Officer Molin alternated the rudder back and forth from the right to left in quick successions, causing a side slip. Remember what a side slip is? We talked about this in our first episode with Air Canada. It's when one wing of the plane is lowered and the opposite rudder is applied to keep the plane pointed forward. It's like something they do in crosswind landings. I think I know what you're talking Yeah, they kind of like, it's like a the, the plane's side kinda, turn. Yeah. yeah, it's going straight, but it's kind of at an angle. Mm -hmm. So this quick rocking back and forth on the rudder from left to right in quick succession created some incredible lateral forces on the vertical stabilizer, which caused the lugs that hold it down to fail. The vertical stabilizer, you know, people think of it as like the tail fin. Uh -huh. The vertical stabilizer separated from the aircraft and fell into Jamaica Bay. It just fell off? It just, yeah, it just fell off. Because they did a, a maneuver? Just right. he, uh, but that was a normal maneuver, right? The maneuver's normal, but he kept alternating left to right very quickly from extreme left to extreme right on the rudder. Oh. And we're going to get into the details on that here in just a second. So the, the stabilizer separates from the plane, falls into Jamaica Bay, and the plane pitches downwards and goes into a flat spin. Did you ever watch Top Gun, Chris? No. No, you no. didn't? Okay, well. I know. It's one of those things that's been on my to-do list for a long time. <laughs> I pretty much, I feel like I've seen it. For the old people like me, you may remember, they talk about spins and flat spins in, uh, in Top Gun. But basically, a spin is a type of stall where one wing stalls more than the other wing. And uh, it causes the plane to point towards the ground in a dive. Uh, it's, it's a stall that can be gotten out of pretty easily with the application of opposite rudder and forward input on the elevator. But, you know, they didn't have a rudder here. Mm. So many pilots are not required to learn how to recover from a spin. The only time you're required to learn spin recovery is if you're going to become a certified flight instructor. Uh, it's not a requirement for a commercial license. Because they just don't ever go into spin? It's, uh, it's probably not something you would normally encounter. But like I said here, they were in a flat spin, which is a little different. In a flat spin, the plane is nearly level and it's spinning like a frisbee, you know, around its yaw axis. What? Yeah, imagine the plane's level and flat, but it's spinning around, yeah, like I said, like a frisbee or a boomerang. Whoa, I, I didn't know planes could do that. They're not supposed to do that. <laughs> like some planes that are designed for aerobatics can do it, like intentionally, but it's pretty much impossible for other planes to get out of. It's really a terrible situation to be in. The aerodynamic forces caused by this spin actually ripped the two engines away from the airplane, and uh, they, they landed on the ground. One of them caused some damage to a gas station, 
it ripped off the engines? Yeah, the engines flew off. Well, how does that... Was it because there was a hole from the tail spit? The it was tail? just the extreme force of the spin and how they were coming down out of the air. So they were spinning pretty quickly. Yes, this is like, like I said, yeah, this is bad. And you know, it's, it's even worse because their engines are ripped off. You know, one of them hits a gas station. The other one hits a house and a boat. So the loss of engines actually cut off the power to the flight data recorder at 9.16.01 a.m. The cockpit voice recorder had backup power. And on it, you can hear the stall warning sounding at 9.16.04. And then three seconds later, Molin says, what the hell are we into? We're stuck in it. States replies, get out of it, get out of it. And those are the last recorded words, because a few seconds later, the plane crashes into the ground in a neighborhood at Newport Avenue and Beach 131st Street uh, in Rockaway Park, New York. It's southwest of JFK Airport. All 260 people on board died, as well as a dog that was in the cargo hold. Oh. And then five people and one more dog on the ground also died because of the crash. Uh, this is the first reported dog that we've had, and we have two That's of them? That's true. I don't think we've talked about that before. I mean, it's possible there were some uh, animals in the other incidents. You know, then people travel with dogs sometimes. Uh, this one just, I think, stands out because there was a, a dog on the ground who was hit by a plane. I don't know if we, you know, that I, I can't remember another incident where that happens. It, it probably has happened, but I can't, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Hmm. But, you know, like you were saying, they're spinning around so violently that the engines are ripped off of the plane. I can't imagine what it would have been like for a passenger on this plane where you just took off you're mm -hmm. not too far from the airport then all of a sudden you know the vertical stabilizer falls off you start spinning the engines get ripped off it must have been terrifying the only bright side i can think of is they weren't very high so they probably didn't you know have to suffer yeah. for very long but uh it was an awful situation all around and so everyone died yes everyone on the plane oh, and then man. what did i say five people on the ground and a dog on the ground as well it crashed into a crowded neighborhood. You know, we did an episode a couple weeks ago about Colgan Air 3407 that crashed into one house. And uh, last season, we talked about that plane that went down in the Portland neighborhood that didn't hit any houses. Hit the forest. Right. It went into like a wooded area in a, in a suburb. This one crashed into several houses in, oh, uh, man. You know, in this neighborhood. So we talked about wake turbulence. I'm going to talk a little more about that. I don't know if we've ever really dug into this topic very much on this podcast. So we'll talk about it a little bit here. So every plane generates wake turbulence from the moment they take off to the moment they land as a byproduct of like the lift from the wings. Mm -hmm. And the bigger the plane, the bigger and more powerful the wake left behind is. And it can be dangerous. So wake flows behind and below the aircraft and creates vortices. And these vortex wake flows it goes outward and upward around the wingtips. Like think about, you ever like put your arm under a swimming pool and you like move your arm around like left and right and the water like, you know, creates like little vortices and you can see the water moving around your arm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's kind of like that. It's, it's helpful if you think of air as a fluid as well. You know, you can put, okay. put your hand through oh, it. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. The, you know, the wing is going through the air and it's creating these vortices. You can't see them because you can't see the air, but think of it like, a swimming pool. Think of it like waves and, you know, moving your arm through water. So normally the common way that pilots will avoid wake is to fly above the flight path of the aircraft in front of you since the wake is below the wings. They'll take off at a point on the runway before the plane in front of you does and land at a point on the runway after the plane in front of you does. So they're always like above the flight path of the plane in front of them. Okay. Sorry, how long does the wake last? Like how... how? So it will settle after a while. I don't know the exact time. Of course, it's going to vary on how big the aircraft is, how fast it's going, a bunch of factors. But there are minimum distances that air traffic control will keep between planes to try to let the air settle between them. 
So the minimum distance between two heavy aircraft, uh, we'll get to heavier, <laughs> what that means in a little bit. The minimum distance between two heavy aircraft is four nautical miles. So air traffic control will not let planes get within four miles of each other to try to let the wake turbulence subside between them. Okay. Like I was saying, during the flight, they stay above the flight path of the other plane or they adjust their course so they don't end up in the wake. So it's like lots of little things you can do. And like I said, there's distances kept between them. So normally the danger in wake comes from larger planes affecting smaller planes. So like I said, before this flight, in front of them, a 747 had taken off, which is a really big plane. Mm -hmm. The 747 is 54 feet longer than the A300, and its wingspan is 64 feet greater than the A300. And it also has four engines compared to the A300's two engines. So the wake generated by the 747 would be really strong. So even though the 747 is way bigger than the A300, they're both categorized as heavy, which is what I said earlier. That means that they have a maximum takeoff weight of more than 300,000 pounds. There's actually a category above that called Super, but the only planes in that category are the A380, which is, you know, that giant Airbus, and the Mm -hmm. Russian Antonov-225, which is the world's biggest airplane. How big is that one? This Antonov-225 is huge. So I'm going to give the 747 first. And we've talked about the 747. Lots Uh of people recognize that. It's the the big four-engine plane. It's got like the hump on the front. Most airlines don't really fly it for passengers anymore, but it's pretty iconic. And that's a big plane. So the 747's wingspan is 211 feet, and uh, it's 232 feet long. The Antonov-225's wingspan is 290 feet, and it's 275 feet long. And the Antonov has six engines that power it. So it's like a, th- what, a third of the size bigger? Yeah, something, roughly. Well, roughly? Yeah. So the, the Antonov and the A380 are the only super planes. Other planes that have a maximum takeoff weight of more than 300,000 pounds are designated heavy. Anything below that is just a normal flight. Anyway, all of that's just to establish that the, the 747 and the A300 were both heavy planes, and air traffic control would maintain a minimum distance of four nautical miles between them in order for safety. You know, and wake can persist for up to three minutes, but we don't know how long the wake would have, would have been here. And uh, ultimately, it's the pilot's responsibility to avoid wake turbulence. You know, air traffic control gives them the tools, gives them the information, spaces them out, but it's on the pilot to avoid that wake turbulence. And like I mentioned earlier, Air traffic control did warn this A300 that there was a 747 in front of them and to watch out for wake turbulence. This episode of Black Box Down is sponsored by the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. Uh, I know every day somebody tells you you just have to listen to some podcast. You nod, you say, sure, then you never listen to it. Do not let that happen here. Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening even inside your own brain. Uh, Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest. And there's something here for everyone. I really mean it. Uh, One episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which sounds useful and, you know, a little disturbing. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. Uh, You can also listen to his conversation with Tony Hawk about his journey to becoming a household name. Uh, I'd also recommend the episode with NBA legend Kobe Bryant, where he talks about some of the creative projects that he was working on. Uh, You guys would love it. Trust me. Check it out. Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. And we're not talking about pop psychology, wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. Uh, If that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. Listen, we really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, please check it out, Jordan Harbinger Show. So like I said, because of the 
the how close this occurred to September 11th, there were some initial concerns that this was a terrorist attack. You know, this is only two mm-hmm. months after 9-11. It was also in New York. When this plane crashed, there were several buildings in New York City that were actually put into lockdown and evacuated. Like the Empire State Building and the UN were both evacuated when uh, they learned of this plane crash just because they didn't know what was going on. It was just people were still really scared at the time. Yeah. They were being cautious, right? And in the months following the crash, there were rumors circulating that the plane was destroyed in a terrorist plot with a shoe bomb, similar to the one found on Richard Reed. And if you remember that, Richard Reed was a British terrorist. Yeah, he... He tried to bomb a plane from Paris to Miami with a shoe bomb, but he tried stopped. to light it with his, right, like light it on the plane, and they like stopped. Why is that dude lighting his foot on fire? Right, and now, and now we all have to take off our shoes before we get on a plane. Yeah, I, I yeah, I remember. I was like, I blamed him for that. Yep, that's that's who you can thank for that. So you know, there were there were rumors that people were circulating that something similar had happened on this plane, and. Uh, in May of 2002, a Kuwaiti national named Mohammed Jabara agreed to cooperate with investigators as part of a plea bargain. And uh, he claimed that Richard Reed and a man named Abdurauf Jadeh were both enlisted by al-Qaeda to carry out shoe bombings as a second wave attacks uh, against the United States, and that Jadeh was responsible for blowing up Flight 587. So he's just taking credit for it? Well, he's blaming another guy. He's saying that oh, yeah, that uh, al-Qaeda had, uh, had recruited this guy named Jadeh, who was a Canadian citizen. And in May of 2002, that same month, the Canadian government issued a memo that repeated these claims, suggesting that Jade had a role in the crash. But they also knew that the reliability of this information was unknown, so there's some questions about it. And according to the memo, Jade was to use his Canadian passport to board the flight, but the American Airlines manifest did not include a passenger with a Canadian passport. Hmm. Yeah, according to the NTSB, the memo's validity was questioned, and there was really no evidence of a terrorist on board the plane. But, you know, instead the aircraft was brought down by the vertical stabilizer coming off the plane. And and they had the all the black box and the flight yeah. data. Yeah. Because the, it, was, it wasn't like it buried in the ocean, right? Right. Well, I mean, yeah, right. It, cra- it crashed into a neighborhood. This was, you know, six months after the incident. So they're still, the, the investigation's still probably ongoing at this point. Just as a footnote, uh, that guy I mentioned, Jade, is actually still wanted by the fbi i think there's a five million dollar yeah there's a five million dollar reward for information leading to his capture uh probably for something unrelated to this flight this this flight (laughs) he had nothing he had nothing to do if if, yeah if he still wanted then obviously he was not on the plane lighting a shoe bomb yeah on the afternoon of the crash the ntsb launched an investigation and over the next three months they conducted 349 interviews and collected and reconstructed pieces of the aircraft the NTSB found that the enormous stress on the vertical stabilizer was not caused by the wake from the Japan Airlines flight, but instead was caused by the first officer's unnecessary and excessive rudder inputs. The NTSB further stated that if the first officer had just stopped making additional inputs, the aircraft would have stabilized. But he was he was responding to the wake. Right. In response to the wake, he was applying he just... extreme rudder left and right. But if he had just done nothing, the plane would have stabilized and everything would have been fine. Huh. But, I mean, it seems like there would also be a problem with the mechanical nature of the plane right because that's an that's an interesting question chris right like why if he wasn't doing anything you wouldn't think he was doing anything super crazy why would just applying left and right rudder cause this so that's actually an interesting segue chris so there were there were some more contributing factors here the airbus a300 sensitive rudder system design and some elements of the american airlines advanced aircraft maneuvering training program were also contributing factors to this crash And I'm going to expand on both of those points here in just a minute. But before we get to that, I do want to say, I want want, want to reiterate something that I just said a a little while ago. You know, I said that if the first officer had just stopped giving inputs, the plane would have stabilized and everything would have been fine. I feel like Mm -hmm. that's a recurring theme in some of these incidents where if people just stopped panicking, like planes want to fly. 
They're designed yeah. <laughs> like under under normal conditions. It's a very simple technology that keeps a plane in the air. If a plane's going fast enough and pointed in the right direction, it's going to be stable. Yeah, especially with autopilot and stuff, right? Well, yeah, yeah, sure. For the most part, <laughs> we've <laughs> we've seen that 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 can lead to some incidents, but for the most part, yeah, you know, it's it, a plane just wants to be in the air. Okay, so the NTSB obviously became concerned with how the vertical stabilizer separated. The vertical stabilizer on this plane is connected to the fuselage with six attaching points. And each point has two sets of attachment lugs. So it's like almost like two loops and a pin that goes through them. I get you. Yeah. And uh, one set of those lugs is made of composite materials. And the other set of lugs is made from aluminum. And they're connected together with titanium bolts. Okay. Damage analysis showed that all of the aluminum lugs were intact, but all of the composite ones were broken. Hmm. Uh, a couple of other previous minor instances had caused the investigators to examine if these composite materials were not as strong as previously thought. Some tests were carried out, and it was found that the strength of the composite materials had not been compromised, and the NTSB concluded the material had failed because it had been stressed beyond its design limit. And of course, you know, they're going to want to investigate this because if composites aren't as strong as they thought, that's used in a lot of planes. You know, this could mm-hmm. be a huge problem for the entire industry. But, you know, upon investigation, the NTSB discovers that the composites performed the way they were supposed to. They were just stressed beyond what they should have been stressed to. Like just a crazy amount of left and right. Going right. Nut. Yeah, exactly. So according to the report, that first officer repeatedly moved the rudder fully left to fully right, and this caused the side slip angles to be hazardous and led to extremely high aerodynamic loads that separated that vertical stabilizer. If the first officer had just stopped giving those inputs, the plane would have leveled out and the accident would have been avoided. They did a performance study that showed the loads caused by the first officer's actions produced 203,000 pounds of force on the rudder, and the rudder was designed to accept up to 100,000 pounds of force. Oh, so this, this He could have broken... To over two of them. Right. This is over double the amount of force the rudder was designed to take. So the composites held up, you know, well beyond their design limit. And the vertical stabilizer structural performance was determined to be consistent with design specifications and it exceeded certification requirements. There's also some talk about how the the controls for the rudder for, you know, in this, in most planes, well, I'm going to say most planes, the control for the rudder in most planes, it's pedals on the floor. Uh, there's, you know, the pilots will press down on left and right pedals to adjust the direction of the rudder. And in this particular plane, there is some, how can I put it? There's some concern because when the plane's on the ground, it requires more force to activate the rudder and move it left and right. And when it's in the air, those same pedals become way more sensitive. So, you know, if you're used to activating the rudder on the ground or at lower speeds, you might think you need more force than you do at higher speeds. So maybe he was pushing down harder thinking he needed to, when in reality he didn't need to be pushing down that hard. Because he thought, but he was in, it's not like he was on the ground. Right, but he may have been more used to the other way. He may not have known it behaved differently. Oh. So it's it's just one of those things where maybe he didn't understand that it behaved a little differently. So like I said, there were several contributing factors to this crash. And the first officer's predisposition to overreact to this wake turbulence caused a panic. Mm -hmm. And it turns out American Airlines had incorrectly taught its pilots to use the rudder for wake turbulence recovery. And this is what resulted in the first officer's misunderstanding of the plane's response to full rudder at high speeds. So he was doing what he was taught. Right. And he, you know, he was taught this by American Airlines, but it turns out this is not what he should have been doing. In most aircraft, the pilot would need to use increased pressure on the rudder pedals to achieve the same amount of rudder control at higher speeds, which is what I was just talking about. But in this A300 and later on the A310, they don't operate on a fly-by-wire, but they use mechanical flight controls. So in a fly-by-wire system, the movements on the flight controls are converted to electronic signals. We've talked about this before. 
and computers determine how to move the surfaces in response. But in mechanical controls, it's the most basic method of controlling a plane, where things like cables and pulleys are used to transmit the forces applied on the controls uh-huh. directly to the control surface. So you have to actually put a lot of effort into it because you're right. actually pulling levers. Right, which is what he was doing. Mm. And the NTSB asserted that the A300 rudder control system was vulnerable to unnecessary excessive rudder inputs. And the Allied Pilots Association argued that the unusual sensitivity of the rudder mechanism amounted to a design flaw that Airbus should have communicated to the airline. And the main rationale for this position came from a 1997 report that referenced 10 incidents in which the A300's tail fins had been stressed beyond their design limitation. Oh, this had happened kind of a lot, but not to this extreme. Right. The rudders and the tail fins had been stressed beyond their design limitation, but it hadn't fallen off yet. This, hmm. you know, this, it finally fell off with this incident. So, you know, you got some people blaming the airline and the pilot, some people blaming Airbus. And of course, Airbus is claiming the crash is American Airlines' fault. And they're arguing that the airline didn't properly train the pilots on the characteristic of the rudder. Is anyone saying that the pilot is the one to blame? Like just bad piloting? I mean, I I could see why people would think that, but he was following his training. Mm. You know, a training that was faulty. And, And that's why that's part of Airbus's claim, you know. They're saying that it's the airline's fault they didn't properly train the pilot. It's messy. So aircraft tail fins are designed to withstand full rudder deflection in one direction when below maneuvering speed. But this does not guarantee they can withstand an abrupt shift in rudder from one direction to another, let alone multiple abrupt shifts like the ones done by First Officer Molin. And the NTSB also indicated that the American Airlines Advanced Aircraft Maneuvering Program exaggerated the effects of wake turbulence on large aircraft and said that the wake from a 747 creates a 90 degree roll, when in actuality it's likely to only be a 5 to 10 degree roll. And they said they did this so they could maximize the training program, but they never corrected the information. And so pilots were put in simulators that were trained to act more aggressively than they needed to. Okay, so yeah, even the their simulators were like, he was doing like everything he was taught, but it was just... Bad. bad data. Yeah. He was not taught correctly. So the NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident was the in-flight separation of the vertical stabilizer as a result of the loads beyond ultimate design that were created by the first officer's unnecessary and excessive rudder inputs. And contributing to these rudder pedal inputs were characteristics of the Airbus A300's rudder system design and elements of the American Airlines Advanced Maneuvering Program. So the NTSB kind of says it's both the airline and the manufacturer's fault. But it sounds okay. like they kind of maybe blamed the uh, airline a little more. So the aftermath of all of this, the NTSB recommended that Airbus review the options for providing increased protection from potentially hazardous rudder inputs at high speeds and to require modifications for protection. And American Airlines also had to modify its training program. And uh, it turns out at the time that uh, American Airlines almost had a monopoly on the route from New York to Santo Domingo. And it was a flight that was made weekly And an increased number of flights were made in December because of higher traffic because of the holiday. A relative of the passenger, Belkis Lora, said that, and this is a quote, Every Dominican in New York has either taken this flight or knows someone who has. It gets you there early. At home, there are songs about it. Oh, huh. Yeah, this flight route was very important for Dominicans and favored American Airlines to fly this route over other airlines. And even after the crash, the number of booked tickets for this route didn't decrease. People, you know, were still flying this this route. Hmm. However... You know, several years later, in April of 2013, American Airlines announced that it would end services between JFK and Santo Domingo. And uh, Dennis, uh, our producer, looked it up and he says that there are still flights that go from JFK to Santo Domingo, but they're not nonstop anymore. Now they they stop along the way. 
There was a memorial that was constructed in Rockaway Park in memory of the 265 victims of the crash at the end of Beach 116th Street. And it was dedicated on November 12, 2006, five years after the accident. And every year a ceremony is held at the memorial featuring a reading of the names of those killed and a moment of silence at 9.16 a.m. And uh, on May 6, 2007, a ceremony was held at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. 889 unidentified fragments of human remains of the victims were entombed in a group of four mausoleum crypts. Oh, that, oh. So this is one of those things where there was just body parts in the street and... Yeah, it was, it was like, uh, a mess. Oh my God. Because it was a very, it was a very violent uh, crash. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is, I mean, it's, it's terrible. The pilot was doing what he was instructed to do, but he was taught the wrong thing. And yeah. you know, the aircraft couldn't withstand the, the, the load he was putting on it. And the worst part, like, like we said, if he had just done nothing, everything would have been fine. Man. Luckily, you know, American Airlines training has been uh, modified. And, you know, they, they, they learned from this. But, you know, at what cost? You know, all these people died because of uh, a faulty training and, you know, a, a rudder that couldn't stand the load. How, wait, so how did they just train them wrong? Like, I don't, still don't quite get that. Like... They, they, in simulators, they exaggerated the effects of wake turbulence on the plane and they incentivized them to use the rudder to try to fight it. I don't know why they did that. I mean, th- I think that's the ultimate question is why would they train them this way? I, I don't know. I, I, I can't answer that. I mean, someone made that decision that this was the way to train their pilots, but I don't, I don't know why that is. Other airlines didn't have that training? I can't say that for certain. Uh, I'm sure, you know, other airlines had training for this. I don't know if their training operated the same way as the American Airlines program. Yeah, because I would imagine, I would imagine that the training for, you know, if they're using the same planes, airline to airline are pretty similar. Yeah, you would think so. But I mean, you know, this was their specific training program on their simulators. So it could be different. Yeah. But uh, that's uh, that's American Airlines 587. Like I said, I feel like it's almost a forgotten incident. It gets kind of swallowed up in um, all that September 11th stuff that happened around it. But, you know, terrible tragedy. Many people died, not only on the, you know, on the plane, but people on the ground as well. And uh, just awful incident. But like I said, if you want to look on the bright side, what we always try to do on this podcast is the industry learned, you know, hopefully everything got safer and processes are put in place to try to prevent these kinds of things from happening again in the future. I'd be curious the percentage chance of a crash and death for an individual uh, passenger now versus what it was like 20 years ago. So it's funny you ask. I've actually looked this up before and the numbers have actually gone way down. I think the peak was right around 1970 when uh, 1,300 people were, were killed in general aviation incidents. And the most recent year that I can see data for here was 2015, and that number had gone down to about 400. And, you know, coupled with the fact that there's way more aviation now and many more people fly, that's really small number. Uh, The number of deaths per passenger mile on commercial airlines in the United States between 2000 and 2010 was about 0.2 deaths per 10 billion passenger miles. Damn. And you compare that to driving, just for the record. Driving, mm-hmm. the rate is 1.5 death per 100 million vehicle miles. So, yeah, and you want to compare that, that's 150 deaths per 10 billion miles. So, I mean, the airline industry is at 0.2 per 10 billion miles. Cars are at 150 per 10 billion miles. Yeah, yeah, huge discrepancy. Going off the top of my head, I think that's 750 times more deadly to be in a car than on a plane. Granted, airplanes go a lot further, typically. 
Right. Uh, true, yeah, but it's still miles traveling. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely flying is way safer than driving, and flying today is way safer than it's ever been at any point uh, in history. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, because like, we're always talking about how it gets safer and safer after every accident. It's like, there's there's the proof. <laughs> yeah, and I think the episode we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that Colgan Air Flight was the first U.S.-based carrier to crash with fatalities in the United States or I should say that's the most recent one. That's when that was, what, 11 years ago. Hmm. So, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredibly safe way to travel. All right. Well, I think that just about does it for this episode of Black Box Down. Uh, if you enjoyed it, we always uh, encourage you to leave a review, hopefully a positive one. Give us a rating if you can, whatever platform you get podcasts on. Uh, share it with a friend. Pick a friend. Yeah. Share it with a friend who has a dog. Who has a dog? Yeah, you, you can bond over. You, you, you can walk your dogs together and listen to the podcast or talk about uh, the most recent episode of Black Box Down. Yeah, and I say dog because we had to stop this recording because my dog was making noises. But uh, <laughs> uh, that'll be edited out. But uh, I, do, I do think podcasts is a great thing to do while you're walking your dog. So yeah, you know someone with a dog? Say, hey, check out this podcast next time you walk your dog. The dog will thank you for it because they'll get walked longer while they listen to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys again next week.